As we come to our text this morning, we see Paul arrives with this delegation that has been sent with him from Caesarea. He's previously spent time in the house of Philip, and this is Philip the Evangelist, not Philip the Apostle. And in that time, he was met by a prophet called Agabus, and Agabus speaks to the things that Paul will experience. He says that Paul will be bound, that he will experience suffering, and he will be handed over into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, for Paul, this wasn't news. He's been told this again and again throughout the book of Acts thus far. Uh, maybe this was surprising news for some of those who were in the house, but many of those who were in the house were Paul's companions, and they have been told this again and again as they've been with Paul. And of course, uh, they react as you would uh, react to anyone who knows that they're going to face difficulty uh, with a level of empathy They are invested in trying to get uh, Paul to avoid the difficulty that is before him. Uh, If if you look back, um, you know, at verse 12, they hear what's going to happen, and then they begin urging Paul, like, you don't really need to go up to Jerusalem. You don't need to make your way there. But Paul is more invested in obeying the Lord than avoiding suffering. And he knew that this was where God had called him to go, called him into difficult situations to a specific group of people. And he goes there not for his own glory, but he goes there for the glory of God. Because he knows that in his uh, obedience, God will be glorified. He knows in his obedience to what God's call in his life is, God's plan will be fulfilled, and he knows that in his obedience, he will be most satisfied in Jesus. Because he's not seeking out his own plan, he's not seeking out his own desires, but he's willing to follow Jesus even when it looks difficult, even when it looks hard, and therefore, he will experience great difficulty He will experience great suffering. But as he says again and again throughout his epistles, he will be joyful and content. You see, the way that we live our lives typically is that we believe that we are going to attempt to walk with God and obey God, but he's called us to something specific or he's put something in our path and we try to walk that path. But the way that we walk that path is we kind of take God's ultimate suggestion and we think we have the best way to walk it. And so we try to avoid God's plan for walking that path. But when we do that, when we think, when we come with our suggestions, when we come with our decisions, our obedience in walking that path never ends up being satisfying to us because we are trying to walk it in a way that would satisfy us. We're not trying to walk it in a way where we are most obedient to Christ. But when we are most obedient to Christ and when we walk with him and when we go with him into suffering, we are 
most joyful in that, most content in that, because he makes himself available to us. Jesus is the goal. He is the prize. Not just obeying him so we can get what we want, so we can say we've checked the box, or we've done the right thing, or gone the right way. We want to walk with him along the road with him. Now, it's important for us to understand this because essentially Paul does just this. He does just this. His journey has thus far mirrored the life of Christ. And the reason that Paul can do this and the reason that Paul can be so successful in this, even though he's facing difficulty, is because his identity is rooted in Jesus. If you look back at what he says here to the, in response to these men in verse 13, he tells them, what are you guys doing? Why are you trying to, to persuade me to not go? Why are you trying to confuse me? Why are you trying to manipulate my emotions? You're weeping, you know, and you're breaking my heart. He says, I'm, I'm sympathetic to what you're feeling. I'm, I understand what you're going through. But he says this, my identity is rooted in Christ. I'm going to obey him above all things. And he says this, I am not only... I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He's not ready to die for his own glory, for his own purposes, to be imprisoned for his own use, but for the name of Christ. And this is how Paul is able to navigate the suffering and difficulty in his life, because he sees that his identity is in Christ and he's thus far most literally trying to walk in the footsteps of Christ as he makes his way into Jerusalem. As we go through our text this morning, you'll see that his life mirrors Jesus very carefully. It was Christ who comes into Jerusalem at this entry, uh, making his announcement of his arrival, and he spends time there observing the temple the rituals and the sacrifices, partaking in uh, Passover and experiencing these things together with his disciples. It's Jesus who deals with the crowds in Jerusalem, both the Jews who hate him and the Roman guards who come and arrest him. Paul walks in these footsteps and he can be confident that he will make it to the end because he has his identity in Christ. He sees that Jesus has made it to the end. Apart from Jesus, Paul would never make this. He would never be able to accomplish this. He would never be able to live out a life for God's glory. He would never be able to walk in these footsteps to experience the suffering at this level. Before I get carried away and start preaching a totally different sermon, let me get back to where we're at here. Let's jump into the text. Verse 17. Paul arrives, he gets here to this guy, Nason, who I'm convinced his parents named him that just to throw everybody off. It's like, you want to pick the M or the, the N? I don't know. I'm, I went with the N. He gets to this house, <clears throat> and the brothers received us gladly. He says, Paul is being escorted to Jerusalem. He's brought to the house of Nason. He has a warm reception. Look at how he's described. They've received us gladly. This is the Jerusalem Christians 
who are there. They recognize that he has come. They're bringing him back home. We read verse 18. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So a couple things here. Paul arrives, he has an informal greeting in the house of Nason with these guys, and they hang out, and they're having a, a great time. The next day, he meets with the leadership of the church. This first person that we see uh, here that Paul encounters is James. This is none other than James, the brother of Jesus, who, go, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This was extremely noteworthy because James was previously not a Christian. When Jesus walked upon the earth, James was a brother of Christ who saw him and was like, nope, like, I live with you. I know what's happening. Like, he didn't want to give Jesus credit. But upon the resurrection, it's James who comes to faith and he goes on to lead the church in Jerusalem. For Paul, this would have been something that is an anchor to see a life changed. Someone else has their identity in Christ. And James here is leading the church. When he sees James, you, you can't help but think of the resurrection because it's the resurrection that brings James to belief in Christ. When he sees his brother, the risen Christ, it's then that he believes. And so James here with the elders of the church, the, these are the leaders who are present uh, of the church. He greets them and we're told that he relates to them one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. One of these things that God had done among the Gentiles is bringing this gift for them. Remember, we've been talking about this for a couple chapters now. Paul's asked the different Gentile churches for a gift to bring financial relief to the church in Jerusalem. They bring that gift and Paul passes it off uh, to them. But then he also gives them an update on what's happening in the churches, uh, in the Gentile churches. A very comprehensive update. It sounds like he describes like literally everything that has happened. This is very similar to what he has done uh, in Acts chapter 15. And so as a result of hearing this, we find verse 20, when they heard it, they glorified God. When they heard it, they glorified God. Now, this is important for us to recognize because the Jewish church initially wasn't very receptive to the Gentile church. But now they see that there is fruit that is happening. They see that things are happening here. And so they hear this. They don't reject it and say like, oh, you guys are like, you know, you're not the chosen people of God. They hear what God is doing and they celebrate. This ought to be our mindset as believers. When God is working in other places with other people, we should be celebrating, right? There's no, there's no level of, uh, that we should ever have of competition or territorial nature as Christians. We're for Jesus, and wherever he's working, like, I'm excited about that. As a church, we don't ever want to get to the place where we're looking at other churches, and they're growing or prospering, and we're like, oh, that's super lame, and they're doing, they're doing well because they're doing this, and that's wrong. No, if Jesus is working, like, we want to be excited about that. It's Jesus' church. It's not our church. We're not in charge. Jesus is in charge. So wherever Jesus is working, we want to celebrate that. We want to glorify God for what he's doing. I'm going to let God sort out who's doing things right and who's doing things wrong. That's his job. It's his church. But we want to have that mindset of 
joining God in what he's doing and celebrating what he's doing. And so here, the, the Christian Jews in Jerusalem, they're thankful for what God is doing uh, in the Gentiles. They hear it, they glorify God, but, but they have some, some reservations here about some things that uh, they're dealing with. There's some, they want to retain some of their cultural values, and they want, uh, they're, they are dealing with some conversations with people who are in their churches, and they want Paul to kind of understand what's happening. So they say this to him, verse 20. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among, a, among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So after Paul finishes telling them about like the work of God and the Gentiles, the Jews want to share like about their commitment. They're like, oh, that's so great. That's amazing. But have you heard about us? Because like we have many thousands many thousands that are among the Jews of those who believe. There's a substantially uh, larger amount than when Paul was last there. Way more Christians. Uh, these, the, the church has grown, uh, you know, since the last time I think uh, we looked at the text um, in Jerusalem, it was around like 5,000 men who were in the church, and now they're saying like many thousands more have, have grown in this church. They're saying, like, we've grown like a ton too. Not only that, they say, but they are all zealous for the law. Now, that can mean a, a, a number of different things. It could mean uh, that there is a zeal that they are caring more about it, that anytime they hear that the law is being uh, denigrated or they feel like the law is being um, spoken against, that they have some level of anger. Uh, Paul described a situation where he had zeal for the law before he came to Christ. In Galatians chapter 1, he, he uh, writes concerning his uh, pre, pre-conversion life. He says, I was advancing in Jerusalem, or in, excuse me, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So uh, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So Paul says, I, I, I was somebody in the past who, who was like, so like religious. I was all about it. But here, it, it would appear that this uh, zeal for the law is more cultural. It, they are referencing the, the Jewish lifestyle and partaking in some of the customs that would not have been in contradiction to uh, the Christian values and doctrines that have been set forth. One of the reasons that we know that is because Paul doesn't argue with them as we go through the text. He's like, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. It's clear that they are zealous for the law on the basis of seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and not as the law as something that brings people uh, to faith. It's not the law that brings salvation, but it is Christ. And I think Paul was likely sympathetic to them because he had come from this, from this lifestyle. And so there's some misinformation that's being spread about him, uh, that's being shared about his teaching. They tell him this, like, everybody knows that you're here. Everybody knows that there's, there's something that's going around about you that 
in the Gentile churches, if there are Jews there, that you're telling them like, oh, you shouldn't participate in, you know, these um, Jewish lifestyle practices. You shouldn't do these things. That's kind of what's, what's, what is, he's being accused of. Now, here's the thing. Paul is not anywhere in the book of Acts coming to a place where he is explicitly telling them like, oh, you can't participate in the Jewish practices anymore. He doesn't prohibit it, uh, but he also doesn't encourage it. He is simply interested in elevating Christ and letting things fall where they may, as long as Christ is above all. He doesn't say, oh, you know, that has gone away completely and you should never practice that or be a part of that. You know, one example is we find in uh, 1 Corinthians where he talks briefly about food that is offered to idols. Now, in the law, that would just be like you never even partake of that. And Paul says it's a matter of conscience. Are they telling you like, oh, this food was like specifically offered to idols and it's a part of our worship practice and we want you to... Uh, partake in this and, and to eat it and join in this ceremony with us, Paul says, like, yeah, you probably shouldn't do that. But he says, if it was food that was offered to idols and, like, idols aren't real, so, like, they don't eat the food and the food's still there, and, like, you know, they're just like, hey, here's some food, and they don't tell you that it was offered to an idol, he's like, yeah, just eat the food. He, 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 doesn't, he just kind of goes real practical and common sense about it. But what he does say is it's a matter of how much you know. He doesn't prohibit it. He doesn't encourage it. He just says, you got to be led by the Holy Spirit here. You got to feel it out. So these, th this false information is going around about them, about Paul. And so Paul doesn't prohibit this, uh, this act. He doesn't encourage it. But he uses Jewish practices often for the sake of the gospel. He takes what is around him that is not against the gospel and he uses them so that the gospel might go forward in a greater manner. In 1 Corinthians 9, he, he explains it this way. He's, he says, I'm not, not being a hypocrite here, but to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. He's like, when I was with them, I lived like them so that I might have access to them. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. But then he says in this parenthetical note, though not under the law myself, he's like, I became as one as, as one. It might have looked like I was one, but I, I wasn't under the law. I was operating in the freedom of Christ. He says, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. It's like, anything I got to do to help people meet Jesus, I'm going to do it. As long as I'm not under the law, and I'm not outside the law. It's like, I'm, on, I'm, I'm in Christ. That's who I am. He says this, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I, may that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul says, my motive is Jesus. I see what he's done. I see what he has accomplished on my behalf, and I want other people to know and enjoy him. 
His identity is rooted in Christ again and again and again. So he doesn't have to worry about being under the law or outside of the law because he's so concerned about knowing and enjoying Jesus. And so these men, they say, hey, like, there's this stuff going around and it looks like maybe to them you're outside of the law. And they're just basically asking him, like, will you come and, sh- and straighten this out? Show them that you're not outside of the law. And so they make this recommendation. Verse 22. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what, we have, what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So, it seems that these leaders, they get it. They understand, like, look, Paul, like, these, this is some rumors that are being spread about you. We get it. We know that's not who you are. We're not concerned about you, but we got to shepherd our people. We've got to help them understand, like, you're fine. You're fine. So he asks, so they ask him to participate in uh, Jewish uh, ritual purification. Uh, as a way of demonstrating that this misinformation that they've heard uh, is not true. And so they ask Paul to pay the expenses of these four men who are under a vow. This is uh, likely a temporary Nazarite vow that's discussed in the book of Numbers. This is the same kind of vow that Moses, or not Moses, Samson, I don't know where I was going with that, Samson uh, participated in. it seems that there were some other men in the book of Acts that we've talked about thus far who've participated in this Nazarite vow, um, oftentimes accomplished as a, a matter of thanksgiving, sometimes um, through purification rituals, different, different reasons that would happen. But one of the things, a couple things that happen, probably the two primary things, and maybe you've heard these things before, one, uh, those who were under the Nazarite vow weren't allowed to eat any uh, Fruit of, fruit of the vine, so no grape products, uh, whether wine, dried grapes, fresh grapes, like you just couldn't have that. Uh, also, uh, you had to let your hair grow. And so part of this ending this vow that is prescribed here is to cut your hair. That's how you uh, would end it through this um, kind of ceremony. And so uh, this is what they ask Paul to take part in. They say, hey, there's these guys, there's four men, they've been under this vow, it's time for them to end this vow, the period of time has gone by. And so they say, hey, why don't you join them in this, uh, in this vow, or, or in this rite of purification, and you can participate, it will show goodwill that you're willing to pay for uh, their ceremony, and also if you partake in the ceremony, it will show that you're Uh, also a part of the community. And so uh, they asked Paul essentially to be purified in this ceremony also. Now, here's why Paul partakes in this. One, for the sake of the gospel, it gives him access and it gives him a voice to this group of people who uh, who currently have this misinformation of him as an outsider. So it brings him back into good standing. Two, as he has been outside in Gentile lands, even not among the Christian community, but among the Jewish community, he had a very limited reach because he was considered unclean right now because he was outside of uh, the Jewish lands. 
So therefore, he couldn't go into the temple. He couldn't go in the places where he would normally go or where he would participate in proclamation of the gospel. He couldn't participate uh, in areas that were strictly Jewish because uh, he wasn't in position uh, ceremonially to be in those spots. And so he had a natural need for this as well. He's returning from this Gentile territory, and so he could uh, go through the ceremony and then would have access to the temple again. And so Paul participates in this. Uh, he, he agrees to this. Verse 25, here's the recommendation from the Jewish church for the Gentiles. They say this, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So they basically in this text, these couple requirements that they have, the Jewish church has for the Gentile church. These are things that were already discussed back in Paul's initial visit back in Acts chapter 15 when the Gentiles were brought into the church. You know, these are all things that basically uh, stand in line with uh, the, the moral law here. And so they're not revisiting uh, this idea about whether the Gentiles are qualified to be in the church, but rather just moving through, reiterating what has already been taught. And so they can tell their people, here's what we've reiterated with them. Verse 26, then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So here, again, Paul is participating with these men. They are purified not for salvation, but for identifying uh, with God's call to purity for access. Paul is being you know, really participating for access to the temple. Uh, verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Okay, now it starts to get crazy. Now it's just like, everything's starting to fall apart here. The time is almost up. Paul's almost out of this time of ritual, uh, uh, this ritual purity that he's going through. Seven days are almost completed, and he is now attacked by the Jews from Asia. They see him uh, in this region, probably the court of the Gentiles uh, in the temple. This is, Paul, this is like the most access that Paul had access to at this point because his ritual purification wasn't completed, so he could only go in so far. Court of the Gentiles is probably it. And they see him, and then they stir up the whole crowd, and they grab him. Now, these are probably the same people who did this to Paul, who started like instigating these problems back in Ephesus. Like they are here now in Jerusalem. Maybe they chased him all the way down there, just like the Jews from the uh, previous cities that Paul had visited. They chased him up the coast and now coming down. Uh, perhaps these are the, they also chased him here. But it seems like that we're told here, they, they see Paul and they see this guy Trophimus, 
uh, who's from Ephesus. They're like, oh, that's Paul. That's that guy. They see somebody they kind of recognize. They're like, that guy, he's a Greek. Paul probably brought him in there. And they're kind of just making all this stuff up, basically still trying to get Paul in trouble. And so they're crying out, you know, for help. And they bring accusations against Paul. Now, the accusations are very similar to the accusations that are leveled uh, against Christ. When the Pharisees get together, when Jesus is not there, when they're considering the threat that Jesus poses to them, they say this, if we don't stop him, if we don't stop Jesus, the Romans will take away our place and our nation. They mean that they will stop access to temple worship, giving them the autonomy that they enjoy there, existing as Jews under the rule of the Roman Empire, and they will stamp out the, Roman, or the Jewish uh, people, all of the, the Hebrews completely. They think, if we don't kill Jesus, if we don't take care of him, this will happen. Now, these accusations are being brought similarly against Paul. Right? They claim that Paul was against the people, Israel, the law of Moses, and this place, the temple. Which clearly, if they thought about it for like two seconds, they would realize that he's not because he's in the middle of the purification ritual participating to get access to the temple. And then they say, oh, he's defiled it by bringing this Greek guy in here. He's like, no, like he's trying to do the things that you would normally ask him to do if he wasn't a Christian. So they clearly just have an issue uh, with him. They don't trust what's going on. Paul wasn't against the people of Israel. He wasn't against the law of Moses. And he wasn't against the temple. He was trying to get access to these things. But what Paul did understand and what he did believe is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment for Israel, for the law of Moses, and that Jesus is the ultimate temple. You see, Paul could be there and go through these difficult times, these uh, moments of suffering, because Jesus had already walked in this place living a perfect life on Paul's behalf. Because Israel, who they say, oh, Paul doesn't care about Israel at all. These people. Jesus said, I care about Israel so much that I've chosen them to be my people even when they were nothing. They were the smallest, the least, the most insignificant, and I chose them. And Israel, again and again throughout its history, was offered a relationship with God through various covenants saying, if you do this, then God will be your God. If you live in this way, then you will be satisfied. And Jesus came and lived a perfect life, fulfilling the covenant, because he knew that Israel would never fulfill it. And Jesus is the perfect Israel who comes and lives in place of Israel. And Jesus cares more deeply than these people do. And Paul sees that Jesus was faithful so that he might also be faithful. Jesus lived a perfect life keeping the law because he knew that no, 
No Israelite would ever be able to keep the law. He knew that no Gentile would ever be able to keep the law. And so Paul says, I believe that the law is important. I think that the law is important. And I want you to understand that the law is important. But I want us all to understand that we can't keep it. And only one has ever kept the law, Jesus. And Paul's there not to say, let's do away with the temple sacrifices, but he says that Jesus came because he knew that the blood of bulls and goats would never satisfy, would never make us clean. But that through his death, through his blood shed for us, in our place, we would have new life and our sins would be washed away and we would be made white as snow. You see, Paul can stand in the midst of suffering because he believes all of these things about Jesus. He's not confused. He's not worried. He doesn't have anxiety or fear about these things because he knows what he believes about Jesus. His identity is rooted in Christ. And so they might make accusations and say, oh, you are a man who does this. He says, no, I, I, love, I love these things more than you do because I see them ultimately fulfilled in Christ. You can bring accusations against me, but I know who I am accepted in Jesus. You can come against me and try to destroy my body, but you will never destroy my soul because it's kept by Jesus. Paul is able to operate in this life because he's found joy and contentment in Christ. This is what Paul is dealing with, these accusations that are false. Now, these men have seen this guy Trophimus with him uh, in the court, in the Gentile court. And this is kind of their basis for how they think they're going to get rid of Paul. Because it was uh, unlawful for Gentiles to go into the Jewish section of uh, of the temple grounds. There was a specific section for the Gentiles uh, called the Court of Gentiles. And there were signs that were, were posted everywhere before you, you, you went into the wrong spot uh, in multiple languages. It basically said something like this. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. So the penalty for, for crossing into that, if you weren't uh, a, a Jew and you weren't clean, is death. You, you move into uh, that section. Now, this is not like God's prescribed law for that. This is just how they kind of set it up. But it got to the point where the Romans understood that this was so important to the Jews that if somebody did cross into that, it was like the one time where there was like a legal loophole where they're like, yeah, like if anybody just goes in there, like you guys can just kill them. Like, you don't have to worry about it for us. Like, you don't have to, we don't have to worry about a trial. You guys just handle the execution. Just you do what you got to do. They didn't want to upset the order that was there. It was one of the things that was 
good and bad about Rome. Like, they just basically didn't care as long as there was order. And anytime there was disorder, they were like, let's just stamp out the rebellion and we'll just kill whoever we need to kill to make it stop. As long as things were basically orderly, there wasn't like a big threat, fine. And so they thought they had proof that Paul had brought this guy into the court, uh, from the court of Gentiles into the temple area. And then the whole city, just like in Ephesus, it seems like these guys who started the problems, they stir up the whole city again. Uh, and the people ran together. They, verse 30, they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. Uh, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So this is very similar to that riot in Ephesus. The whole city stirred up. The people are running together. They grab Paul. They're on their way out uh, of this. It's kind of confusing how they word it because you don't understand the temple diagram. But basically, like, they're still, like, on the temple mount. They're not, like, in the temple area. There's, like, an intersection, outer section, and a fortress that's nearby. They're kind of like in this, like, we'll call it a moat, even though it's not a moat. It's just like a little corridor where they, where they have them caught. Um, and so they, they take Paul out there. They're, they are shut by the captain of the temple, uh, which is not a, uh, which is like a religious position, not a military position, captain of the temple. Uh, and so they were seeking to kill him, it's like very clear what they're trying to do. Uh, the word comes to the tribune of the cohort, excuse me, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So again, it's like problem number one, confusion. Rome's like, let's straighten this out. Like they, they, don't, they don't mess around when it comes to like riots. It's just stop it quickly. And so this military tribune who's in charge of the cohort, he hears what's happening and he stops the execution. It gets to the point where the problem is serious enough that like the head, head, head guy is like, okay, like I got to get down there. He grabs uh, some soldiers, centurions. This is likely just here for a show of force to just crush this rebellion. It's not like, uh, I, I mean, it, it, it was not probably like these centurions and, and soldiers couldn't handle it, but he's like basically to show uh, an iron fist here. And so he gets down there and basically wants the Jews to understand, like, no riots. Like, we're not, we're not doing it this way. Verse 33, Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So Paul, he's shackled to soldiers on both sides, likely. He's kind of like, Psh. they got They got one guy over here has got him, one guy over here has got him. So he can't uh, get away. Um, the tribune inquired who he was and what he had done. So he tries to find out, like, what's the deal? Who are you? What's the situation? What's the charge against him? Now, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, very similar to what happened in Ephesus. Like, they're arguing and, like, they're saying different things and nobody really knows, like, why are we all upset? We're just, like, kind of writing for the sake of writing. Uh, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So the tribune, he moves Paul into the barracks, verse 35. And when he, and when, uh, he came to the steps, 
he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. So seems like uh, they kind of had to like crowd surf him, like like the soldiers like put Paul up there and they were like carrying him around because everyone was trying to uh, attack Paul anyways. Um, for the mob of people followed crying out away with him. So Paul finds himself in a lot of trouble all of a sudden. I wonder if he, in the midst of this, is like thinking like, dang, Agabus, like why you got to like say that thing about I'm going to be bound my hands and handed over to the Gentiles because like it's exactly what's happening here. He sees like I'm in trouble. But again, in the back of his mind, we hear, <coughs> we, we kind of get it get that mindset that Paul had. I'm not only prepared to be imprisoned in Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the name of Christ. Like Jesus, Paul is arrested, facing a mob, except only here, the crowd does not shout, crucify him, but they just shout away with him. They wanted to take care of the job themselves. The crowd wanted to kill him. But God uses this opportunity, this time of difficulty in Paul's life, facing violence, threat on his life, a crowd that clearly wants to kill him, he uses it for the sake of the gospel. He uses Paul, stretching him, growing him, shaping him into a tool that would be comfortable in these situations. God has shaped Paul's life entirely, putting him in the best schools, letting him excel and prosper, making him one who is comfortable in the Gentile and in the Jewish world. And he will use every single tool, every single experience that Paul has for the sake of the gospel. All he's asking Paul to do is continue to be satisfied in Jesus. To stay on course. To look at Christ to be satisfied. This is what God wants to do in all of our lives. To help us navigate life, not just answering the big questions about where are we going to work and for how long and how much are we going to pay for rent and what sort of food should we make and, you know, oh, I don't maybe have access to this or that. But helping us understand that each thing that you do have access to is not the answer. Each thing that you have in front of you in your possession, each gift, opportunity, talent that you have is something that be, can be used for God's glory and ought to be used for God's glory.
There is nothing that you have that does not already belong to God. You're just a steward of it. And you're either going to be a wise steward or you're going to be a foolish one. Or you use what you have for your own glory, for your own satisfaction. All things that you have are given to you so that you might steward them wisely. Even the situations in life that are difficult, that lead to suffering. You know, for uh, the last, I don't know, six years, seven years, something like that, I've been in freelance. I mean, you guys know, it's make your own schedule, live by your own hustle. You got to go out there and find the work, make the work, find ways to get paid, make sure you pay your bills. In that schedule, there has been a lot afforded to me in the ability to meet with a lot of you during the week, to accomplish things uh, for the church, to share the gospel in different venues. And uh, it's, been, it's been a while since I've been back in like the organized work world, but tomorrow I start again. <laughs> I join the regular workforce where I work for somebody else and not, uh, not for myself. And I've had many opportunities uh, as a freelancer. But one of the things that was kind of always like a weird pet peeve of mine when I was in the workforce is kind of the corporate speak that they give you. It's always like so obnoxious in my mind. I worked for Apple for a number of years and, you know, HR has got like all the catchy phrases and like this and that. And the way that they always couched uh, kind of the phrasing of some of the things is, you know, you have your, uh, you have your strengths and then you have your opportunities. And I was like, why can't we just say strengths and weaknesses? Trying to like make you fluffy and feel all good. Like, oh yeah, great. Like, why can't we just say like, yeah, you're like horrible at that. Like it's a weakness. Because, because for, for me, I'm thinking about it through the lens of when I am weak, he is strong. And so I'm willing to admit my weaknesses and say like, I'm really horrible at that. And so weaknesses come with humility. You can just say like, yep, I'm like awful. Like I need to improve in that area. And as a Christian, I would always kind of view it that way. And going through the interview process and what, for this new job, here comes that talk again, like strengths and opportunities. But as I'm looking at the text and as I'm looking at life, I think that that is a really helpful way for us to view it. My, my thought about it has changed. Of course, I think it is wonderful and welcome to admit your weaknesses and, and to be recognized as someone who is weak. Weakness is the way because Jesus is strong. And when I'm trying to be strong, Jesus can't be strong. I would rather be weak and just let him be strong. He's stronger than me. But as I consider the strengths and opportunities, that is the mindset that we need to have. Instead of saying, 
oh, that's a weakness, I'm not going to participate in that. We need to say, here's difficulty ahead, here's something that is a struggle for me, here's something that is very hard, but it's an opportunity for me to glorify Christ. My mindset has shifted in, in this, looking at it not so much as like, this is an opportunity for me to do good for this company, but in, in this thing that I would normally consider a weakness, in that weakness, there is opportunity for God's glory. And I think that's how we need to view situations that are in front of us. The things that we would think are difficult or are struggles, those things are opportunities. And there's nothing worse than a missed opportunity. I don't want to get to the end of my life. I don't want to stand before God and say, I gave, and have him say, I gave you all these opportunities to glorify me and you missed them all. I want, to, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Here were all these opportunities to glorify me, and you took, you took them all. You, you did everything that you could with them. And so I want to grasp all of those opportunities, all of those things that are difficult and hard, all of the th- ways that you have to make that decision with Christ to walk the hill of Calvary with him, to say, I will deny myself, I will take up my cross, I will follow him, and on the way, I'm discarding who I am because I only intend to come out in him. I'm going one way with him, and I'm going to glorify him in every opportunity. And so all of the decisions that I make are not to uh, preserve my life for the future. All the decisions that I'm participating in, the ways that I choose to invest my time and my resources, the way that I choose to structure my life will not be for my own gain, will not be for my own comfort, will be explicitly to obey Christ. I don't want comfort. I want Jesus. When I get to Jesus, it's going to be comfortable because he rules everything. But if I try to get comfortable on my own, I'm just going to fall short. Seek his kingdom. Seek him first. Seek Christ, not comfort. Let's pray. Lord, we want to see you lifted up. You are the goal and the prize and the thing that we need more than anything else. We want to be satisfied in you. And so, Lord, in the journey of this life, show us opportunities where we can glorify you most faithfully. Call us out from comfort Call us to that wonderfully rich, fulfilling, abundant life of simply walking with you. We need you. Work in our hearts, Jesus. Change us, transform us. 
We love you. Amen.